Well, good morning, West Park. If you would, take your Bible and open to the passage that Colin read for us in Romans chapter 4. I am so excited to be uh, preaching today from this passage. I, I love the book of Romans. Uh, such a, a wonderful book talking about the glories of our relationship with Jesus Christ. This morning we were talking or singing about that marvelous, matchless grace. And uh, I just couldn't help but just that just makes my heart soar. I'm so glad that my relationship and your relationship with Jesus Christ does not depend on our merit. Aren't you? It depends entirely on our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm also thankful for the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul uh, does a marvelous job, of course, of, of explaining these truths to us and, and helping us to grasp and understand what Jesus has done for us and how that affects our lives. And in chapter 4, it's uh, uh, certainly right along those lines. Paul's making a case. And as anyone who is a debater or maybe even a, an attorney would make a case, he's, he's going to quote uh, truth, in this case from the Old Testament, and then he's going to expound on those truths and, and reason from those truths, and you and I can do that along with him. Uh, I'd like to just call your attention to some of, those, some of the phrases that Paul uses that clue us in to his, his way of reasoning. Um, there in verse 1 it says, What shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, and then he goes on and, and, and makes a point. He uses that for if Abraham, that phrase kind of clues us in that he's going to make a, a key point based on the life of Abraham. And then he makes a further point, verse 4, he says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. So he's making another point. And he does that reasoning one thing upon another upon another, just building truth in our lives. And there's so much truth here, and I thought, how in the world can we cover this entire passage? 25 verses. So I broke it down into seven points. <laughs> Hopefully we'll move through quickly. The title of the lesson, the message this morning is the law of faith. The law of faith. And I actually pull that from chapter 3. If you look in chapter 3, verse 27, Paul says this. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded for by what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith, by the law of faith. By the law of faith, Paul says, our boasting is excluded. In other words, we have nothing to boast about. We have no grounds to boast upon because it is excluded by a law, the law of faith. It's interesting he uses that term, law and faith, because he's going to contrast those two things. But he uses that phrase, law of faith. It makes me think of, of the way we use the word law. There is the law that 
when you drive down the road, there is a speed limit posted. And if you go exceed that, you are breaking the law, right? That is the law. The posted speed limit is the law. I'm glad none of you here are lawbreakers. <laughs> Me either, <laughs> of course. Five miles an hour is okay, right? Is five miles an hour over? No, that's still breaking the law. But then, you know, we also use the word law to refer to natural law, like the law of gravity. Uh, the older I get, the more aware I become. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about. The law of gravity. Well, part of that is I'm getting shorter. But the other part is I fall down a lot easier than I used to. So that is also a law. It's a different kind of law, but it's also a law. Well, Paul talks here about the law of faith. And I think when he says that in chapter 3, verse 27, he's kind of expanding on that in chapter 4. And he uses that word boasting. He says, we have no right to boast. There is no grounds on which we can boast. And then he picks that word up and brings it down into chapter 4 when he's talking about Abraham. Let's look at verse 1 again. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our father according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So he's saying not only can we not boast, but Abraham cannot boast. And so that brings us to our outline. We're going to, like I said, there's seven points to this outline, but we'll, we'll try to move quickly, Okay. And it's based on seven principles that I see in this passage. Seven principles of the law of faith. And the first principle is right here in verse 1 through verse 3. It's the principle of justification. The principle of justification. You see, if Abraham was justified by his works, then Abraham would have something to boast about. But Abraham was not justified by his works. Look again at verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, we've heard this many times, but just in case you haven't heard it or you need to be reminded, this idea of counted is, is really an accounting term that righteousness was put on Abraham's account because, not because he obeyed God, not because he was righteous, but because he believed God. Because he believed God, God imputed to him, was an old King James word, accounted to him righteousness. That is the only way we can achieve righteousness. Righteousness is counted to us by faith. So what's this idea of justification? How are we justified or what does justified mean? Well, justified means the act of making someone or declaring someone righteous. I like to remember it this way. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. As if I stood before God and all of the sins that I've committed in my life didn't exist. God doesn't even see them. They're put out of his sight. But it's not just that. It's not just as if I'd ever sinned only. It's also just as if I'd always been righteous. 
You see, what God has done is he's taken the righteousness of Jesus Christ and he's taken my sin and he has exchanged them. He has put my sin on Jesus on the cross and your sin too. And he has put the righteousness of Jesus Christ on those who believe his word. Abraham was justified by faith. He was declared righteous. He was made righteous by God, by faith. And this justification by faith gives all glory to God. He can't boast about it himself because God is the one who did it all. It's God who does the work. Now, principle number two is the principle of the gift. This justification that is given to us is a gift. It's not something we earn. It's something we've been given. Look in verse 4. It says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So if you want to work for your salvation, it could not be a gift. If God gives you a gift, it cannot be by works. Anyone who receives something for the work that they do, they receive it as wages. As a matter of fact, we don't want the wages that we earn, do we? The wages of sin is what? Death. That's what we earn. We earn death. If we were given what we deserved, we would receive death. If we were given what we deserved, we would be eternally separated from God. We don't want what we deserve. God has given us salvation as a gift. And so the principle of a gift shows that we cannot possibly work for it. It cannot be as from works. And so we can't boast about it. It's nothing we can brag about. It's nothing that we have done. You say, what does that mean? According to what Paul says here, to him that does not work but believes, then I don't have to do anything. It doesn't matter whether I obey God or not. Because all I've got to do is believe, right? Well, James talked about that. James tells us in chapter 2 of his book, verse 14, he says, What good is it if, uh, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? That's faith that does not work. You see, true faith produces works. But it's salvation that comes by faith, not salvation that comes by work. And Paul's point is that you cannot work for your salvation. But if you have faith, it will produce works. So there's the principle of the gift. Thirdly, there's the, the principle of complete forgiveness. Look in verse 6. It says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, first of all, let's notice that Paul is quoting David. David in the psalm, Psalm 32, by the way. He's quoting David 
And David is living in Old Testament times. But even in Old Testament times, David is talking about a person himself who does not have to bear his own sin because there is a blessing that comes to the one to whom the Lord does not count his sin. It doesn't mean that he didn't sin, but that God did not count his sin against him. As a matter of fact, look at again in verse 7 and 8. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are what? Forgiven. It doesn't say there weren't any lawless deeds. What is a lawless deed? Well, that's breaking the law. That's breaking the law of God. David broke the law of God. You and I have broken the law of God. We have had lawless deeds. But he said, blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. God covered David's sin, and God will cover our sin. And blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So there's a blessing to people who are sinners, who have lawless deeds, and who have sin in their life, but it's not counted against them by God. Your sin can be covered by God. David knew that. David experienced it. And then the, sec the next thing is the principle of availability. This promise is available to all. Look with me in verse 9. It says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So let's talk about this passage for just a minute. There is a blessing, or the, the blessing that God gave to Abraham... This promise that God gave to Abraham uh, of forgiving his sin and imputing to him righteousness, that was given to him in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, long before Abraham was circumcised. Remember, the Jews would always claim circumcision as a mark of being a true Jew. It was one of the rituals they went through, and God gave them that as a seal of the covenant. But unfortunately, like a lot of us today, they looked at the seal as the covenant itself instead of a, an, a picture of the covenant. They were trusting in the outward instead of trusting in the heart relationship with God. Instead of trusting in God himself, they were trusting in the acts that they did for God. And so Paul makes the point that it was before Abraham's circumcision that he received righteousness. 
He received that righteousness by faith way before circumcision. And why is that important? Because that enabled him to be the father of all who would believe. Those who are circumcised, who believe, and those who are uncircumcised, who believe. You see, the key to being a child of Abraham has absolutely nothing to do with your nationality. It has to do with you following in the footsteps of faith that Abraham, our father, followed. You and I become children of Abraham by faith. We become children of God by faith, not by who we are, not by our heritage, not by our background, not by our nationality, not by any outward sign, even if you're a Baptist, even if you belong to West Park. When you stand before God after this life has ended, the Lord is not going to ask you if you were a member of this church. He is concerned if you're a member of his family. And you and I become members of his family by faith. Abraham received this righteousness before he was circumcised. It is faith plus nothing. It's not faith plus baptism. It's not faith plus church membership. It's not even faith plus obedience. It's not faith plus anything. It is faith alone. Faith alone in Christ alone that saves us. And this is the point that Paul's making. And it's available to all. Anyone, all who will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. And by the way, no difference between the American and any other nationality. No difference between a Vol fan and an Alabama fan. <laughs> by the way, very proud of how well you sang this morning. I was amazed that anybody had a voice left. We can have fun with all of those type things. And there's nothing wrong with being very thankful for the heritage that God has given you. But we cannot trust in any human institution for our justification. Amen. It is entirely a work of God. Number five. There's the principle of promise and grace. Look in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the, if, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Now I want you to think about that for just a minute. He says, the promise came by faith, and if it came by works, if it came by adhering to the law, then the promise is nullified. 
In other words, it can't be both by the law and by faith. It's impossible. If you try to add to just in case, then you are nullifying the promise. This is the concern that I've always had for people who think that they're saved by faith but kept by their works. That I'm saved because I trusted in Christ, but I better watch the way I live because I might cross the line and God won't, won't take me into heaven. I'll lose my salvation. The problem with that is if you do that, you are trusting in your works to save you. You can say you're trusting in Christ, but if you trust in Christ and then say, just in case, I'm going to do this for Christ too, so I make sure I'm saved. I mean, if it's by grace, I'm covered. If it's by works, I'm covered. Then it's by works in your mind. It is by faith alone, grace alone. That's not an excuse for disobeying God. That's not, a, 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 that's not cheap grace. It's not easy believism. But if you try to add to Jesus Christ, whatever you add becomes your God. It has to be Christ and Christ alone. That is the case that Paul is making. If it is the adherents to the, of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. Why does the law bring wrath? The law brings wrath because we can't keep it. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's something wrong with us. The law is righteous, but we are not. And we cannot keep the law. We're sinners. And because we're sinners, we're incapable of keeping the law for our salvation. And so the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. We know about our sin because there is a law. Paul said in another place, I wouldn't know covetousness unless the law said, Thou shalt not covet. But I know covetousness. Do you ever covet? I know I do. I was coveting a win last night. <laughs> I was. I, you know, it's interesting when you watch a football game. Oftentimes you'll see players on both sides praying to God. Looking up to the Lord. And I'm sure both of them pray for victory. Which one's he going to give the victory to? There's nothing wrong with prayer, obviously. We want to pray. But folks, we all fall short. Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, and most of chapter 3 made that quite clear. And because of that, the law brings wrath. So if we want to earn our way to God by keeping the law, we're in trouble. Verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. You see his argument? His argument is you cannot possibly know that you're saved if you're trying to be saved 
by keeping the law. That is why it depends on faith. Look at this. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. You see, there is no guarantee of your salvation if you are trying to be saved by your deeds. Because you are always going to fail. No one is righteous. No one keeps the law perfectly. Paul was a Pharisee. And he didn't keep the law perfectly. He sinned. We all sin. That is why it depends on faith. And the fact that it depends on faith means that the promise rests on grace. God's unmerited favor. You know, everything that God gives us, He gives us by His grace. We didn't do anything to deserve it. It is because He loves us. And He didn't love us because we're beautiful. He doesn't love us because He's going to get something out of the relationship. He loves us because it's His nature to love. God is love. He loves us because of who he is, not because of who we are. And he places his love on us and gives us everything he gives us by grace. And so it's through the promise. It's not through works. And it rests on grace. And because of that, we can trust in the fact that it is guaranteed to the offspring of Abraham. And who are the offspring of Abraham? All who believe by faith. So you and I are the children of Abraham, and we have the guarantee. Verse 16, the next part, he says, no, Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. You see, whether a person is a Jew or whether they're a Gentile, whether they're trying to keep the law or whether they're not trying to keep the law, if they genuinely put their faith in God, put their faith in in Christ, they receive the promise, not because of their religion, but because of faith in Christ. So, as it is written, verse 17, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God whom he believed, who also gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. See, God told Abraham he would be the father of many nations. Assuming all of you in this room are Christians, you're the children of Abraham. Now, I don't know how many of you, if any, have had your DNA checked to see what your background is. I haven't done that. According to my mother, there's some Scottish background there, there's some Irish, there's some German, I know about that. I'm just kind of a Heinz 57. (laughs) Most of us are. All those nations and many more, Abraham would be the father of those nations. How? By faith. By faith. That's why it has to be by faith. And so God has made him the father of all nations. And God called that into existence when it didn't exist. This is the God we serve. 
when God speaks, it happened. When God said, let there be light, guess what? There was light. God speaks it into existence because he is God. He's the only one who can do that. And if he can do that, then you and I can trust his word, right? Whatever he says is true because he said it, because he's the very definition of truth. So we can trust everything he said. Next is the principle of faith, beginning in verse 18. It says, of Abraham in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Let's talk about this principle of faith. It just so happens, and many of you are in this class, I'm, I've been teaching on Abraham, and so I've, I've become quite familiar with Abraham. Abraham is a fascinating character to me. I, I love to study the life of Abraham because, to me, the life of Abraham illustrates the walk of faith very well. We're told how wonderful Abraham is in the New Testament, but when you read his stories, you kind of see his warts too. Abraham didn't always do everything right. Now, I don't want to say a whole lot about him because I don't do everything right either. And I haven't had to go to the top of a mountain with a knife in my hand to take my son's life and trust that God would raise him from the dead. So I can't really criticize Abraham too much. But Abraham didn't get to the point of Genesis chapter 22 overnight. His journey of faith began when he believed God And it was counted to him for righteousness. And that was back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. As a matter of fact, even before that, God had told Abraham to leave his family, leave his home, and go to a place that God would tell him about. Well, he didn't do it right away, but eventually he did that. So he believed God was able to give him a home even though he didn't know where it was at. He believed God when he told him to go, that God would guide him to a place. Because he went. He did what what God told him to do. But Abraham stumbled in his faith along the way and eventually became the great man of faith that we look back on now. But this man Abraham, his faith was enough For it to be counted as righteousness to him all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. Even though it was imperfect, his faith was enough. I want you to notice in verse 20 it says, he grew strong in his faith. He grew. His faith wasn't fully mature at the beginning. But he grew strong in his faith. 
But there were certain elements of his faith that I want us to notice. First of all, there was hope in his faith. Verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope. Now, what does that mean? Well, in hope refers to his hope in God. And we've talked about what hope is in the New Testament, right? Hope is not, I hope so. Hope is assurance. It's a confident assurance that God will do what he said he'll do. Confident of something that I haven't seen. Remember, faith is the evidence of things not seen. It's confident of something I haven't received physically, but I know God has promised it. It's out in the future, and my hope is a confident assurance that God will fulfill his word. God had made promises to Abraham, and he hoped. He had a confident assurance, but that hope was against another kind of hope. He hoped against hope. What was the other kind of hope? Well, that was the hope that you would put in yourself. The hope that you would put in your circumstances. You see, Abraham's circumstances weren't very favorable to having a family. When God called Abraham, when he left and went out toward Canaan, he was 75 years old. And God promised that he would make of him a great nation. That his descendants would be like the stars in the sky in number. Abraham believed that. But if he looked at his own body and the barrenness of his wife's womb, he wouldn't have had any hope. You see, his hope was in God, not in what he saw. His hope is what was in what God said, not in his circumstances. That's what it means when he hoped against hope. See, it's one thing to believe God will provide for you when everything's good. But when things look pretty dire, and God has made promises, and you're wondering, okay, God, <laughs> when are you going to come through here? You know, in a few weeks, we're going to have uh, some time to, to be thinking about Jehovah Jireh offering coming up. And we'll have an emphasis from the pulpit on, on stewardship. You know, that's one of those things that a lot of Christians struggle with is putting God first in our finances. Why do we do that? Well, we do that because when you look at the checkbook, or nobody has checks anymore, right? You look at the account online, and you see a dollar figure there, and maybe it's got parentheses around it, or it's in red. That's not good. When you see an amount, it's easy to put your trust in that amount, right? And when you do your budget, and when you sit down and you think about all the expenses that you have and, and everything else, it's real easy to say, you know, there are other people at my church that give. I really don't need to give that much because, I mean, after all, I'm really, it's tight. But what did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God 
first the kingdom of God. First the kingdom of God. Put God first in everything. It's not just about money, but money is sometimes where our heart has a harder time because our hope is in that. You see, Abraham looked at his own body and said, (laughs) I'm too old to have a child. And I've been married to Sarah for a long time. We've been having to have children, trying to have children, and she is barren. Everybody in our family knows Sarah is barren. If you read the account of Abraham's life, it tells you pretty quick Sarah, Sarah was barren. That's what they were known for. She wasn't going to have a child. That was against hope. Who would believe that? If Abraham's sitting around with his buddies and he says, God told me Sarah's going to have a child. And they're looking at Sarah, 65 at that time. Really? That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. That's why later he he decided to try a surrogate method. Because he, he faltered a little bit. Sarah faltered a little bit in that. But folks, they weren't putting their trust in their physical circumstances. That's what faith is. Faith is exercised by hoping against hope. We hope in God's word, not in our circumstances. We trust what God says, not what our experience is. And then because of that, he grew strong in his faith. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. It was a process of growth. Twice Abraham told his wife, tell him you're my sister, because he was worried that somebody was going to take his life and steal his wife for their own. If he had really been thinking about God's promises, he would have known that that couldn't happen. Because God was going to fulfill his promises, and they hadn't happened yet. And there was no way anybody was taking his life. God was protecting him. But he struggled a little bit. But over time, he grew. He grew to trust God more and more. And God gave him more and more information along the way. First of all, he told him that he was going to have a child and he was going to have this nation come from him. And he thought it was going to be through his heir at that time who was the servant in his house, Eleazar. God said, no, it's going to come from your own body. So then he believed that God was going to give it through his own body, but he didn't tell him about Sarah at that point. So then Sarah comes up with the idea of bringing Hagar into the mix. And he says, yeah, that'll work. It's still coming from my body. But then after Ishmael was born, God said, no, it's not Ishmael. I'm going to bring this promised child through Sarah. Then he knew. But each time God revealed to him, his hope grew. His faith grew. The more God revealed, the more he believed. And Abraham grew strong in his faith. Genuine faith grows. It doesn't just stay static. It grows And this is why, verse 22, this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Because it was faith in God, not faith in himself, not faith in his circumstances. So lastly, that brings us to number seven. So we've gone through seven points already, six of them anyway. We're on number seven. And this is the principle of application. So we can talk about Abraham all day long. 
Abraham's faith. And we talk about how Abraham's faith grew. We can talk about how Abraham hoped against hope. We can talk about all that with Abraham. But what does that mean for you and me? Well, how does that apply to us? Verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. See, these words were written before, Paul says in another place, for our learning. Abraham's life was not just about Abraham. Abraham's life was to teach us. It was written for us also. He says, for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who, delivered up, uh, who was delivered up for our uh, trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, Abraham's life, Abraham's legacy was not just to give us the history of the father of the Jewish nation and even the father of all who would be faithful. But it was for our application, our understanding, that if we believe, if we believe that God has raised Jesus from the dead, if we believe that Jesus was delivered for our transgressions, if we believe that he was raised from the dead, then we can have everlasting life. We can be justified. Just as Abraham was justified. Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Insert your name there. James believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Right now, my standing before God is just as if I'd never sinned. Amen. And it's just as if I'd always been righteous. I know I have sinned. I know I have never been righteous but because of what Jesus did on the cross for me he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him the great exchange Jesus took my sin and your sin on himself on the cross he took the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, Paul tells us in Colossians. And he, he, he put them away, nailing it to his cross. All the times you've broken God's law, all the times I've broken God's law, all those charges were nailed to the cross with Jesus. And when you believe him, when you put your hope in Him, in Him alone, not in yourself, that justification is yours. You are righteous before God. And God has given it to you by promise. And that promise cannot be revoked. God's Word is true. David knew that. 
And he talked about it in Psalm 32. We mentioned that earlier. But I'd like you to just look at Psalm 32 with me. Psalm 32, verse 1. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So now, we read that in Romans. But let's read further, because this is David's experience. Verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And there's that word, salah. You know what that word means? It's just a pause. Kind of let that sink in. David was under conviction because of his sin. God's hand was heavy on him. And it was burdening him down so much that he, he felt like he was wasting away. He felt guilty of the sins that he committed. He couldn't get them out of his mind. You ever feel that way? Satan ever reminds you of all that you've done in the past? Tell you that you're not worthy? Tell you that God could never use you? God could never love somebody like you? You're not good enough? You're too dirty? You're too filthy? That's what David was experiencing. Here's what he did about it. Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You see, our natural tendency when we feel dirty because of our sin is to run from God. That's what Adam did in the garden, you remember? Adam hid, Eve hid, because they knew they were naked. They had always been naked, <laughs> but now they knew. Because the innocence was gone. They had violated God's command. You see, God had given them a law, a command, just one. Don't eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat anything else you want, but don't eat of that tree. It's kind of like when somebody puts a sign up that says wet paint. You know somebody's going to touch it, right? And they touched it, and they ate it, and they sinned. And they did the wrong thing. They didn't run to God. They ran from God. David has learned to run to God with his sin. I hope you've learned to run to God with your sin. He said, I acknowledge my sin to you. You forgave my sin. Then verse 6, 
Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The reason I wanted to close with this passage of Scripture is because you may be here or you may be in the sound of my voice online and you may be burdened with your sin. You may be that person that feels like God couldn't possibly love you. And if this church knew the truth about you, they would have nothing to do with you. That may be the burden that you live under. You may live in a, in a burden like that in such a way that you're hiding who you really are. And you're always looking over your shoulder. But there's good news. See, we need to do what David did. We need to run to God. Let's not do what Adam did and run away from God. We run to God because guess what? He's already provided for your justification. Amen. He has already nailed your sin to the tree. It's already done. It's a finished work. And it will be accounted to you. It will be moved off of Jesus' account onto your account. If you will put your faith in Jesus Christ. Before God, you will be righteous. All of your sins will be gone. They will be covered, forgiven. And God will never bring them up against you anymore. Not because of how good you are, but because of how good He is. So the question this morning for you is will you trust Him? Will you trust Him? You may also be one of these uh, folks that struggle with fully trusting the Lord. Yet, yeah, I, I prayed that prayer, but I know i got to do certain things too to make sure. I was listening to a Christian radio program several years back, and it was, a, it was actually Christian psychologists that were doing the program. I used to listen to them all the time. And, and one of them, his father, had passed away. And they were just talking about what a fine man his father was. I'm sure he was a fine man. But he made a statement. He said, you know, it really wouldn't matter whether salvation was by faith or by works because he was so good, he would have been saved either way. And I thought, oh my goodness, how can you say that? There is no one good enough that that could be said of them. Not even Pastor Sam. I mean, he might be close, but he's... None righteous. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. But the righteousness of Jesus Christ is the only hope we have. We can hope against hope. 
because we are just as hopeless as the womb in Sarah's body was to produce anything good. But God calls those things which are not (laughs) into existence. That's the one who died for you on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I am so thankful that our righteousness does not depend upon our works. For we would all suffer eternal damnation and separation from you if it depended upon us. But the righteousness of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has been given to us as a gift, not as wages, but as a free gift by faith in Him. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here in the sound of my voice that is struggling with their sin and they are under the weight, as David described, that weight of sin that is burdening them down and making them feel that they're constantly worried about falling into judgment. Help them, Lord, to run to you, to trust in you and you alone. Not in any man-made institution, not in any deeds that they might do, not in any heritage they might have, but in in you and you alone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us all as we walk this walk of faith, to walk by faith, to live our entire lives by faith, trusting in Christ to lead us in everything, trusting you with our our lives, our families, our homes, our finances, everything, putting you first for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.